Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing near death experiences. What, what, what are we to do with people who say that they have evidence that there is life after death? I like to put it in terms of two options, and either one you are allowed to choose, but you should know what options you're choosing. Option one is that some ill-defined metaphysical substance not subject to the known laws of physics interacts with the atoms of our brains in ways that have thus far eluded every controlled experiment ever performed in the history of science. (laughs) Or people hallucinate when they're nearly dead. Near-death experiences are not convincing evidence to anyone who doesn't desperately want to believe. Remember, the dispute isn't over whether the near-death experiences were had, it's over the interpretation of the experiences, as Sean Carroll just explained. I'm sure some people are lying. There's certainly a financial incentive to do so. But we don't have to go there to win the argument, and I don't believe they are lying in most cases. I don't doubt those who have had NDEs any more than I doubt psychonauts in their trip reports. Even if you're taking a hallucinogen, your experience is real. But if you have some weird account of your experience, like you have an immaterial soul that's actually floating outside your body, or you're opening a literal third eye, or you're having memories of an actual past life you lived, that is entirely separable from the fact of your experience. As Carol alluded, the debate on some level is over substance dualism. Ibn Alexander and most NDE believers reference some version of brain-free consciousness to explain what happened. We discussed substance dualism back in the Science versus the Soul episode, so I just want to quickly raise a few objections to the idea that we have an immaterial soul entirely separate from the atoms in your brain. Even substance dualists don't deny the stunning correlation between the brain and mind. We can make alterations to the physical matter in your brain and change anything about you. To quote neurologist Stephen Novella, There does not appear to be any intrinsic limit to our ability to map and alter anything considered to be part of our subjective experience. Damage or alteration to the brain can change your sexual identity, your moral decision-making, your personality, your ability to even think about the world. Non-materialists often dismiss this as mere correlation, but that is not fair in my opinion. The correlation is incredible and predictive. To give just one more example, Synesthesia is the phenomenon of different sensory modalities mixing together, so synesthetes will smell color, or perhaps perceive numbers as having a physical texture. There is evidence for more robust neural connections and activity between the relevant brain areas and synesthetes. That is a pretty compelling neural correlate. End quote. As I mentioned, dualists are not able to credibly deny the stunning correlation between the brain and everything we use to attribute to the soul of a person. Dualists have an answer to this problem. To quote William Lane Craig, Just as a piano player uses a piano to play music, so the soul uses the brain as an instrument to think. And if the instrument is damaged, then just as the musician can't play piano music, 
In the same way, if the brain is damaged, the soul is unable to think properly. End quote. So the dualism-interactionism that Craig is advocating there is a picture of an unknown substance influencing the physical activity of the brain. It's exactly what Carol described at the beginning of this episode. Many substance dualists have tried to sidestep the predictive correlation of the brain and mind by claiming that the brain is a sort of interface, or receiver, for the soul. The reason we can use drugs or transcranial magnetic stimulation to change virtually everything about your personality, or your moral decision-making, or your experience, is explained by Craig's piano analogy. If I tuned the piano in a strange way, the music produced would be different. There are several problems with this piano, or interface, analogy. For one, it violates Occam's razor by multiplying entities unnecessarily. We only need the brain to explain everything we actually know. And yet, they want to add extra metaphysical baggage on top of the brain for no good reason whatsoever. They claim to have reasons for adding the soul, but these are easily answered. For example, the alleged persistence of identity over time, states of intentionality or aboutness, and qualitative conscious experience can all be explained without invoking anything but the material of your brain. As I mentioned, the picture of reality being offered here is one where your immaterial soul has the power to physically move around the atoms in your brain and body. You have a soul that's literally moving matter around. I can apparently use my soul to move around the meat and bones of my hands and arms and to direct the electrochemical activity of the brain. Isn't it kind of arbitrary to say my soul has no control over any other matter? Even substance dualists admit that my arms and legs are nothing but large collections of atoms, as well as my brain. My soul can apparently move these, so why can't I move other collections of atoms with my soul? That idea is only ridiculous on materialism. An implicit belief in substance dualism is the reason something like telekinesis made sense to our ancestors. Telekinesis is the production of motion and objects without physical contact. The dualism-interactionism advocated by Craig and others is a fancy version of telekinesis. The mind is moving physical matter without physical contact. It's all telekinesis. The soul influencing the brain and body is telekinesis by definition. So why is there this completely arbitrary cutoff between my hand and a collection of matter right next to my hand? My hand is a collection of matter itself. The reason our ancestors were able to imagine telekinesis was in part because of their understanding of the mind, which was fundamentally dualistic. If you believe that you have an immaterial soul that's playing the piano of your brain, that must mean that your soul is moving around the physical stuff that is your brain and body. Why wouldn't my soul be able to telekinetically bend a spoon, just as it can telekinetically bend my fingers to bend a spoon? If you're saying that idea is ridiculous, you're implicitly accepting a materialist framework or at least a non-dualistic framework. This is one of many objections to substance dualism that fall in the category of things that would be possible on dualism, and maybe idealism, but not materialism, panpsychism, neutral monism, or any of the positions in philosophy of mind that naturalists and atheists tend to occupy. If substance dualism is true, I see no reason we shouldn't expect some legitimate cases of telekinesis and other parapsychological phenomena. We wouldn't expect any of it on materialism, but it does make sense on dualism. Another phenomenon that would be possible on dualism, but impossible on materialism, would be body switching. 
What keeps one soul anchored to its particular body? Freaky Friday scenarios are only conceivable on substance dualism. We all intuitively know what's going on when someone switches bodies in film or literature. The souls have left their original hosts and have occupied a new one. You are your soul, and your body is a vessel. This is absolutely incoherent on materialism, and only makes sense on dualism. I can happily suspend my disbelief during a movie, but in the real world, I would have to ask why this doesn't occasionally happen if dualism is really true, along with telekinesis, and ghosts for that matter. Ghosts also only make sense on substance dualism. If you agree with what all of modern science appears to be indicating, that there's really nothing but atoms up there, then there is no way for your conscious experience or the information that is you, your personality, desires, memories, everything about you, to continue on after those atoms have been broken down and have gone their separate ways. Our current materialistic understanding could not accommodate parapsychological phenomena. You wouldn't predict them on materialism, and you would on dualism. Observable, repeatable evidence for these phenomena would be extraordinary evidence in favor of dualism. But as I'm sure you know, the evidence for any parapsychological phenomena is non-existent. There has not been a single example of mind-to-mind communication, telekinesis, or body switching that has been demonstrated, let alone that can be repeatedly produced in controlled conditions. There are plenty of unverifiable, second-hand motivated anecdotes, but that's obviously not good evidence unless you've already decided you're going to believe in these things regardless of the evidence. James Randi, for decades now, has offered a million-dollar prize to anyone who can demonstrate their parapsychological abilities. No one has ever taken the million dollars, so either these things can't be demonstrated when someone is looking, or they just don't need the money. There's this, there's a false assumption about science uh, operating here. Science is not in, in principle committed to the idea that there's no afterlife or that the, the mind is identical to the brain right. or that materialism is true. Science is completely open to whatever in fact is true. And if it's true that the consciousness is being run like software on the brain and can by virtue of ectoplasm or something else we don't understand can be dissociated from the brain of death, that would be part of our growing scientific understanding of the world if we could discover it. Now, uh, and there's, there are ways we could in fact discover that if it were true. The problem is there are very good reasons to think it's not true. And we know this from now 150 years of neurology where you damage areas of the brain and faculties are lost and they're clearly, it's not that everyone with brain damage is has their soul perfectly intact, they just can't get the words out. This is, the, you, everything about your mind can be damaged by damaging the brain. You can cease to recognize faces, you can cease to know the names of animals, but you still know the names of tools. I mean, the, 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 the fragmentation in, in, in the way in which our, our mind is parcellated at the level of the brain 
is not at all intuitive, and, had, and there's a lot known about it. And what we're being asked to consider is that you damage one part of the brain and the mind, something about the mind and, and, and subjectivity is lost. You damage another and, and, and yet more is lost. And yet if you damage the whole thing at death, we can rise off the brain with all our faculties intact, recognizing grandma and speaking English. Now, so last episode, I said that how to interpret out-of-body experiences could easily be settled by putting some random number generators on tall shelves and using TMS to cause an out-of-body experience. Then we could find out if there's some brain-independent soul that's disconnecting from the body and actually floating above it, or if it's rather the explanations offered by psychologists and neuroscientists. If subjects could accurately report the high-placed numbers during their out-of-body experience, that would be interesting. I couldn't find such an experiment until after I had uploaded the episode and found out that someone, an NDE believer, did run a version of that experiment. I said I was fairly confident that either the experiment hadn't been run, or that it was run, and the results were not what believers wanted. Well, wouldn't you know it, I was right. The results were not what believers wanted, even though the study was run by a fervent NDE believer, and he brushed those unwelcome results right under the rug. Here's Susan Blackmore writing in The Guardian back in 2008, when the study was first announced. I was surprised to hear the news that Sam Parnia had been awarded a big grant to find out whether the human spirit leaves the body at death, whether consciousness can survive when the brain is no longer working. He and colleagues around the world will place an image on a platform suspended from the ceiling of hospital wards and resuscitation areas, so that the image cannot be seen from below, but could be seen if during a near-death experience, the patient's consciousness left his body. End quote. So unique photos were placed on high shelves, and not a single person was able to report what was on the shelves. There were no cases of patients who were able to see, remember, and report the hidden images. To quote Stephen Novella after the results were published, The multicenter study involved placing an image in a location that was hidden from normal view but could be viewed by a person floating above their body during an NDE. This could be a way to objectively differentiate between the two leading hypotheses. But wait a minute, there is no mention in the abstract of the hidden images. How can that be? I understood this to be the main outcome of the study, the one thing that would set it apart from the merely descriptive studies of the past. What happened? There are two mentions of the hidden images in the discussion only. End quote. So let me quote the 2017 release on the study from the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Quote, Of the 2060 cardiac arrests during the study, 140 patients survived and could be interviewed for the study. Of these, 101 patients had detailed interviews, which identified 9 patients who had had an NDE. Of the 9, 2 had detailed memories with awareness of the physical environment. One experience was verified as accurate the other was too ill for an in-depth interview. These two experiences occurred in non-acute areas where no visual target was present, so further verification of visual awareness was not possible. End quote. So they claim, if you can believe it, there were no photos in the room, which kind of defeats the purpose of even running the study, but they were only granted hundreds of thousands of dollars So you can't expect them to competently carry out the only interesting thing the study was supposed to carry out. The NDE that was, quote, verified and provided detailed memories with awareness of the physical environment was a man whose heart stopped 
and was defibrillated. After he was resuscitated, he had some uncanny knowledge about his resuscitation. Quote, During the NDE, the patient felt quite euphoric. The patient heard an automated voice saying, Shock the patient, shock the patient. The patient rose near the ceiling and looked down at his physical body, as well as a nurse and another man, bald and, quote, quite a chunky fella. He also knew that the people who resuscitated him were wearing blue scrubs. The medical record confirmed the use of a defibrillator that would give the automated instructions the patient heard, and the role that the identified man played during the resuscitation. Unfortunately, both cases with auditory visual awareness occurred in non-acute areas of the hospital, without any shelves. End quote. A few of the details could obviously have been inferred by anyone, and I'm not sure why they even included them. His heart stopped. Of course he was defibrillated. A lot of people who work in hospitals wear scrubs. The other details that couldn't have been inferred could have been gathered by the man through direct experience. He saw that someone working on him was overweight. He heard an automated voice. As I mentioned last episode, it's not as if the moment your heart stops beating, the lights immediately turn off. There's oxygen in your brain right now that wouldn't just magically disappear because your heart stopped a split second ago. That takes a little time, and as we know, slowly depriving the brain of oxygen leads to extraordinary mental states. It's not at all surprising that one man, out of how many, was still taking in auditory and visual information in these few precarious moments. Again, if he saw the pictures on the shelves that supposedly weren't in that particular room, that would be good evidence. But that's not what we have. We gave the criteria ahead of time of what would convince us, and it was not met. So let's be honest about what all these arguments over neuroscience and shoes on windowsills are really about. Death. I don't want to die any more than the people who send proof of the afterlife books to the top of the bestseller list every time one comes out. But that is a reason to be especially skeptical of the idea that we survive death. One of the strongest biases humans have is that we go easy on propositions we would like to be true. So if you can detect in yourself any fear of death or desire for your loved ones to evade death, as any normal person probably does, that is a reason to be especially skeptical of claims that we and the people we love, might not really have to die after all. We should search for what is true, and not for what we want to be true. Human beings are not perfectly rational, and we know we have powerful cognitive biases, including this tendency to go easy on claims we want to be true, and hard on the ones we don't. <laughs> I want to live after I die, maybe not for infinity years, but for a few hundred thousand years I could amuse myself. Uh, <laughs> Sadly, uh, as a very wise philosopher once said, you can't always get what you want. That's all I have for you today. I have two new patrons to thank, Cardioid Chick, and Rory B. Murkowski. Thank you, Cardioid Chick, and thank you, Mr. Murkowski. And of course, I have to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Nathan Grounds, and Pre-Nifty. 
And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you think you can always get what you want, you can like us on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also check out our brand new sister show, Walden Pod. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time. You might find